Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. This being Easter, we want to uh, hook on to some things that we said this morning, perhaps, and go a little bit further. Um, Hebrews chapter 2, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews, I believe it was Paul, but at any rate, whoever it was, was uh, inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell us some things. And he's telling us some things about Jesus, the Messiah, that I think is uh, very relevant to, uh, uh, well, it's talking about his work on the cross and his sacrifice and his resurrection, of course. And, uh, and, uh, I, I believe it's very relevant to, uh, uh, to healing school. So let me start reading in verse 14, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, the same flesh and blood, in other words, talking about his coming to the earth in flesh and blood. For what purpose? That through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. You remember, in, uh, we've looked at um, uh, uh, numerous times at John chapter 10 and verse 10, where Jesus contrasts himself and the devil, his work and the devil's work. He said, uh, the thief, talking about the devil, the thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. In other words, he's saying anything that steals, kills, and destroys is of the devil. And the devil can't do anything other than steal, kill, and destroy. It's it's amazed me through the years how I've heard some Christians say, well, maybe the devil just let up. Well, the devil doesn't know how to let up. All he does is steal, kill, and destroy. He doesn't steal or kill and destroy at a lesser rate than he usually does. He's never your buddy. Every work of the devil is a work of stealing. Every work of the devil is a work of killing. And every work of the devil is a work of destroying. That means anything in this life that steals, kills, and destroys is of the devil and is the devil's work specifically and exclusively by him. Well, it's easy to see the sickness falls into that category, isn't it? It's amazed me also to see how many Christians, people that are children of God, talk about God, their father, supposedly. And I think in most cases, people are genuinely saved. They just are genuinely ignorant. But they talk about their heavenly father. Well, maybe God's trying to teach me something through this sickness. Well, if sickness steals, kills, or destroys, it can't be from God. It's impossible. And all the things that people use, excuses, or or to come up with reasons and, and so forth about, well, maybe God's doing this. If it steals anything from you, it can't be him. If it results in destruction or in killing death in some way or another, it can't be him. Well, maybe God brought this sickness or this tragedy into my family to, to teach us something. I've heard people say, well, you know, this terrible thing happened. My, my, my dad died of cancer, but people in the hospital got saved. Well, folks, God was behind the people in the hospital getting saved, but not behind the cancer. And don't ever allow yourself to be kidded or to be convinced that it takes a death or a tragedy or some terrible situation for somebody to come to God. Now, they may choose not to turn to God unless things get so bad that they have to, but that's not God's doing. And God's not the one that causes people to experience hardship and tragedy and trouble and so forth in order to try to reach them. Because tragedy steals. Adversity kills and destroys. The devil's behind those things. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2 that it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Not sickness and disease. Not tragedy and destruction. God's never behind any of those things. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, there's just so many things that we, can, we can't explain. And that's a reason to blame God? How quickly Christians, children of God, will jump on the bandwagon and say, well, we can't understand this, so God must be behind it. 
Seriously? If you can understand that the devil steals, kills, and destroys, that'll answer a lot of your questions. Well, why did this happen? I don't know. But that sure doesn't mean God's behind it. Jesus said, the thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I am come that you might have life. Something that dawned on me here just recently over the last couple of months is that the opposite of stealing is not giving. The opposite of of killing is not making alive. And the opposite of destroying is not repairing or restoring to something. The opposite of all those things, killing, stealing, and destroying is life. Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and that you have, might have it more abundantly. Abundant life will do away with anything the devil stole. Abundant life will do away with anything the devil killed. Abundant life will do away with anything the devil has brought destruction upon you. I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Now, please notice these two verses, John chapter 10 and verse 10. I'm come that you might have life more and have it more abundantly. Notice again Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Jesus took upon himself the nature, the same nature of mankind, nature of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, and that is the devil. I'm so glad he had that last phrase, and that is the devil, because I don't think a lot of Christians understand who has the power of death, or at least who had it. Now, Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life. Here, Paul says by the Holy Ghost that he took upon flesh, that through his death he might destroy him that had the power of the death, power of death, talking about the devil. Notice the only way Jesus could bring us life was through his death. And that death, the, 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 the means or the mechanism whereby that death of Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, would cause us to have life and to have it more abundantly was through the destruction of the devil's power over death. Can you see that? We know that sickness is a part of death. We could interchange or interpose or substitute the word sickness here for death. Let's read it that way. Jesus himself took upon, for as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself also likewise took part of the same flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of sickness, and that is the devil. That through Jesus' death he could destroy him that had the power over sickness, and that's the devil. Now, that has to be true because sickness is a part of death. We know that when God created the earth, there was no sickness to be found until after Adam sinned. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 5. Let me remind you of another scripture you should be familiar with. Romans chapter 5 speaks specifically to the things that we're about to say or started to say about Adam's original sin. Romans chapter 5, notice verse 12. It says, wherefore, I'm reading from the King James, as by one man, talking about Adam, sin entered the world. Well, we know that to be true. There was no sin anywhere until Adam fell. Adam disobeyed God. So by one man, Adam being the federal head of mankind, Adam's action counted for all of mankind. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world and death by sin. Now, what death is he talking about? Is he talking about physical death? Well, let's see. When God commanded that Adam not eat of the fruit of the uh, of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, you can eat of every other tree, everything else is yours, but leave this tree alone, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Leave that alone. For And he told him why. He said, for in the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. What kind of dying is he talking about? 
She's talking about physical death. Is that what this is talking about? Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world and death, physical death by sin? Is that what he's talking about? Well, then somebody explain to me why it took 930 years for Adam to die physically. From the time that Adam sinned to when he died physically, when his body was laid in a grave, it took 930 years. That's a pretty healthy lifespan, wouldn't you say? So he can't be talking about physical death. In the day that thou eat thereof, eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. He can't be talking about physical death. God could not possibly have been referring to physical death because he didn't die that day physically. Well, what death is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual death. Now, what is spiritual death? The Bible identifies spiritual death generally as separation from God. Man died spiritually because he became separated or estranged from God. But the law of sin and death, the consequences of spiritual death coming on mankind was sickness and disease, poverty, and everything that was that, that could hurt or harm mankind. Anything that could steal, kill, and destroy. In other words, the power of death that Satan holds over your life is the power to bring sickness against you, the power to bring sin into your life, tempt you with sin, influence you to, to commit sin, and then thirdly, to impoverish you. To steal finances, resources from you. You remember that was part of the curse that came upon the earth. God said to Adam and Eve, because you have disobeyed me, now the earth will only yield for you through the sweat of your brow. Apparently the earth yielded for him in some other way prior to that. Now I don't know what that was. Maybe Adam spoke and things grew. I don't know. That would be kind of like God, wouldn't it? And Adam was the God of this world. But he said, now the earth is going to bring forth only through the sweat of your brow, and it'll bring forth thorns and thistles. In other words, not only will it produce good things that you want it to produce, it'll produce things that steal from you, steal time, steal effort, steal labor, even steal goods. Why? Because it was a fruit or a byproduct or a result of the death that passed upon all men, the spiritual death that passed upon all of mankind. So here's the deal. Let me go back to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 and finish the scripture and then I'll finish my comments. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world and death and all of its consequences by sin. Sin was the open door that caused death to reign in life. And so death, here's that spiritual death and the consequences thereof, the result of being separated from God. While man was joined together with God, united with God, and walking in fellowship with him, there was nothing that could hurt him, nothing could harm him, and everything that he said went. He had dominion over all the work of God's hands, over all the things that creeped and crawled and and, uh, over the earth and the fish and the sea and the fowl of the air, and everything else that was created was under man's dominion. But not so when death passed upon all men. Now death is ruling. Now death is reigning. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death and its consequences, sickness and specifically, as per our conversation tonight, passed upon all men, for that all sinned. The word have is not in there. For that all sinned. It's not saying death rules over you because you've committed sin too. It's saying death rules over you. The law of sin and death rules over mankind because Adam sinned. And because you were in Adam, even though you weren't born, even though those who would bring you to the place of birth hadn't even been thought of yet. Thousands of years before our families, you were in Adam because Adam was the, 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 the source, the originator of mankind. 
And all of the men and the women here on the earth since that point in time were in him. So when Adam sinned, you sinned because you were in him. Boy, think about that on the on the reverse side. Think of what it means to be in Christ. Think of the victory that we have in Jesus. The victory that Jesus won, and now we're in him. See, I don't know about you, but I didn't have anything to do with that Garden of Eden stuff. Did you? Of course not. None of us did. But it rules and reigns over me, just the same as it ruled and reigned over Adam. Or at least it did before I found out who I was in Christ. Because I was in Adam. But now, I'm not in Adam. I'm in Jesus. I'm in Christ. I've got a different family and a different promise. Let me read this to you from the Jewish Bible, complete Jewish Bible. Verse 12, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says, here's how it works. It was through one individual that sin entered the world, and through sin, death. And in this way, death passed through to the whole human race inasmuch as everyone sinned. Now, the problem is very simply this. The power of death, the power of death, rules and reigns over the earth for one and only one reason, and that is because of the original sin in the Garden of Eden. Except for that, if Adam had been able to act on his own, if he had said, okay, whatever I do doesn't count for the rest of mankind, if there was some way he could have separated himself from mankind, then the law of sin and death wouldn't have ruled and reigned over the earth. But he couldn't. He was the representative head. Of all of mankind. And until something is done about that original sin, death will rule and reign once and for all. Well, what was done? Turn with me over to Romans chapter 8. We know that's what Jesus did or what Jesus intended to do when he came to the earth. Through his death, he would destroy him that had the power of death. Well, what's he going to do about this? Romans chapter 8, let's start reading in verse 1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. I'm not going to read the rest of the, the, the verse because in most trans, uh, manuscripts, not all, but in most of the ancient manuscripts, the last phrase, who walk not after the spirit but after the flesh, belongs to verse 4. Now, why did the translators pull it up? Now, you know that the, that the text aren't in chapter and verse, but there are divisions. And the translators purposely had to bring up this phrase, who walk not after the spirit but after the flesh, or walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. They had to purposely bring that up into chapter, into to what we know of as verse one. Why did they do that? I've never had anybody give me a satisfactory explanation, at least a historical explanation. So the only thing I can surmise, the only thing I could come up with is that they could not understand, could not accept at face value what Paul wrote by the Holy Ghost. He's just finished talking about in chapter seven about how the struggle he has between his spirit and his flesh. And he comes to the conclusion that Jesus is the only thing that can deliver you from this. So he starts off in what we know of as chapter 8 by saying, There is therefore now, because Jesus is is our deliverer, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Period. Just as there was no escape for them that were in Adam, there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But I guess the translators were so focused on behavior, that they thought, well, that can't be right unless you do the right thing. Well, in one sense, I guess that's right, but doing the right thing is bringing yourself in Christ Jesus, making Jesus the Lord of your life. So is there, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, period. 
Why? Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I want you to notice that that's not conditional. Because you're in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free. Not going to make you free. Not hopefully one day if you straighten yourself out enough. If you're good enough or whatever. The law of sin and death has been broken once and for all. Now we know death, spiritual death includes sickness. So we could say the law of sin and sickness. That narrows it down, but it certainly is is applicable. That's not all sin and death means, but it certainly does include sickness. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and sickness. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Sounds really good. Verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, some translations say for as a substitute for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Please notice that last phrase, condemned sin in the flesh. I want to read this to you from the complete Jewish Bible. I'm going to read down through uh, from verse 1 through verse uh, 3. Same verses I just read in King James. Therefore, there is no longer any condemnation awaiting those who are in union with the Messiah, Why? Verse 2, because the Torah of the Spirit, they use the word Torah instead of law. For what the Torah of the Spirit, because of the Torah of the Spirit, which produces this life in union with the Messiah, has set me free from the Torah of sin and death. For what the Torah could not do by itself, because it lacked the power to make the old nature cooperate, God did by sending his own son as a human being with a nature like our own sinful one, but without sin. God did this in order to deal with sin, and in so doing, he executed the punishment against sin in human nature. Do you know what condemned sin in the flesh means? Condemned sin in the flesh, the last phrase in verse 3, literally means he dealt with Adam's sin. He executed judgment against Adam's original sin, which was the entry, the entry point, the entry way. For the law of sin and death. For what by one man's sin, death, spiritual death, and the consequences thereof, including sickness, passed upon all men. For all sinned. Jesus, however, condemned through his own death, through his own sacrifice, through the, the offering of his flesh and blood, which was in the likeness of sinful flesh, but without sin on his part. In other words, he was a righteous sacrifice condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned the original sin. He shut the door on the entry point, the entryway, for death to rule and reign over mankind. Again, that sounds real good to me. But I guess we really have to ask a question, and that is, if there's no condemnation to us, if the law of the spirit of life has made us free from the law of sin and death, including sickness, If Jesus once and for all, through his own flesh, the offering of his body, condemned sin in the flesh, condemned or executed judgment on Adam's original sin, which was the entry point for sin and death and sickness all along, why do we still get sick? Turn back to Hebrews chapter 2. Let's reread verse 14 and go a little bit further. Hebrews chapter 2. 
We'll read verse 14 again. It says, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, the same flesh and blood, that through death, his physical death, or well, not just his physical death, but spiritual death, the offering of himself as a sacrifice, he might destroy him that had the power of death, the power of sin, sickness, and poverty. That is the devil. Now notice, let's keep reading through verse 15. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Do you know why Christians get sick? According to Hebrews 2.15, it's because of fear of death. Now, if you look up this word fear, it means terror. It means alarm. It means fright. The Bible is very simply saying that since Jesus destroyed the works of the devil, since he stripped the devil, uh, Colossians 2.15, Jesus spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly. It literally means he stripped the devil. He took the keys of hell and death. Revelation chapter 1, verse 15, I think it is, somewhere around there. Jesus appears to John on the Isle of Patmos and he says, Behold, I am he that was, that was dead and I'm alive and live forevermore. And I have the keys of hell and death. How did he get them? We just read in Hebrews 2.14 that devil, the devil had the power of death. How did Jesus get the keys of hell and death? The keys of hell and death is the power of death. How did Jesus get it? Through a sacrifice. Through paying the price for mankind's sin. We talked a little bit this morning. If you weren't with us, I encourage you to get the tape or MP3 or whatever, however you want to get it. Get the message from this morning. Because Psalm 88 talks about the great punishment, the full weight of God's wrath that had to be satisfied in order for man to become righteous. In other words, it was Jesus paying the price not only in his flesh, but in his spirit after his flesh was laid in the grave that condemned or executed judgment against the original sin. And by executing judgment upon the original sin, not mankind, but upon the original sin, under which mankind was subject to, he freed all of mankind. He enabled all of mankind to become righteous simply through a choice of accepting his sacrifice as their own. His sacrifice is a substitute for them. His punishment to pay for their punishment. So why do we get sick? If we've been free from the law of sin and death by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, why do we get sick? Through fear of death. Through fear of death. Now, don't think of fear from the standpoint of how many of you are afraid of snakes? Most people are. What happens if you walk around a corner and you see a snake? Ah! Right? You jump about 20 feet high, come down running. That's not the kind of fear it's talking about. It's talking about the kind of fear that's the opposite of faith. Because fear and faith are opposites. In other words, the reason why Christians get sick is because they don't believe in the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now, you, we're going to have to qualify that, too, because some people will say, oh, no, I've read that scripture. Yeah, I believe that. There's a big difference in knowing it's there and believing it. There's a big difference in head knowledge and heart knowledge. There's a big difference in being aware of scriptures and even having read scriptures, even committed them to memory and having your eyes open, the eyes of your spirits opened to what belongs to you. Big difference. It's the difference in head faith and heart faith. See, we operate on head faith in a lot of ways 
here on the earth. What I mean by that is we believe in what we see. That's what head faith is. We believe in what we see. In some ways, that's helpful for us. You start to cross the street, busy intersection. You start to cross the street and you see cars coming. You need to go by what you see. You don't step out in the middle and say, I believe there's no cars. I believe there's no cars. I believe there's no cars. Co-wap. That'd be stupid, wouldn't it? We believe in a lot of things that we see. We operate according to our five physical senses. And we operate in that way according to our experience. You didn't test the chair before you sat down in it. I didn't see anybody come into the room testing the chair and making sure it was going to hold your weight. You're used to a chair operating the way it's supposed to. It's built to hold your weight, right? So you sat down in it. You didn't check it. You just sat down in it. You expected it to hold your weight. You have faith in the chair, but that's not hard faith. It's because you have experience sitting in chairs. You know how chairs are supposed to work. Your mind understands these things. But the scripture is a contradiction to your mind. By Jesus' stripes we are healed is a contradiction to your experience, your life experience. Your life experience is to be afraid of sin and sickness and disease. And if you don't overcome that fear, and again, it's not terror It's in the stand, from the standpoint of like being afraid of a snake or a spider or something like that. But if you don't under, if you don't overcome that experience of here's how things work. Well, it's flu season. Going to get the flu. Better go get my shot or else I'll get the flu. If you don't overcome that with a real heart faith, then you'll continue to be in bondage to what Jesus has already set you free from. Now, how do you develop that heart faith? How do you get free from that fear of death? There's only one way that, 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 that it comes, and that's through the Word. Romans 10, 17. So then faith, heart faith, Bible faith. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter... I'm going to start in chapter 52, the last couple of verses of chapter 52. And again, I'm going to read this from the complete Jewish Bible. I don't know if you know this or not, but all the Bible authors, everybody that, that uh, authored a, a book in the Bible was a Jew. And as a result, there's some real, real helpful, in my opinion, at least for me, there's some real, real helpful um, insights with the complete Jewish Bible. I have just recently found this, and I, I just found it within the last year. Never heard of it before. I came across it. As a matter of fact, somebody told me about it. They said, have you ever read a complete Jewish Bible? And I thought, well, what is a complete Jewish Bible? I thought that'd just be the Old Testament, wouldn't it? And they explained to me, no, it's a Jewish translation, a Jewish point of view on the scriptures. And I got a hold of one and man looked at some scriptures and it's like, this is really good. So I'm going to read some to you from the complete Jewish Bible. I'm going to start in Isaiah 52. Uh, let's start in verse 13 and then I'll read it down, down into verse uh, chapter 53. It says, see how my servant will succeed. He will be raised up, exalted and highly honored. Talking about Jesus. Just as many were appalled at him. This is talking about his crucifixion. Because he was so disfigured that he didn't even seem human and simply no longer looked like a man on the cross. So now he will startle many nations. Because of him, kings will be speechless. For they will see what they have not been told. They will ponder things that they have never heard. Chapter 53. Who believes our report? To whom is the arm of Adonai revealed? Now I want you to understand... Again, there's no chapter and verse in the original text. 
So he goes from one thought to the next thought. And the first thought is, here's what Jesus looks like on the cross. And then he tells us, gives us what we know of as a whole chapter, the messianic chapter about how we will know Jesus or what Jesus will do for us. I misspoke. How we'll know him is what he looks like on the cross. Doesn't say that he's going to be crucified in so, in, in so many words there, but it tells us that his appearance is such that he doesn't even look human. Well, we know that took place on the cross. We have the insight or the advantage, I should say, to look back. Did they know that at the time? I don't have any indication from Isaiah's writings that he knew that Jesus was going to be crucified at that point that he wrote that scripture. But it's a pretty good landmark for how they'd know who the Messiah is. And so then he says, who's going to, re- who's going to believe our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed, King James says. Those are connected. You want to see the power of God shown in your life? You want to see the power of God, the healing power of God shown in your body? Believe his report. Just exactly what we said before in different words. You're going to have to overcome the fear, the experience of sickness and disease and the way that it operates in the world, the way that sin and death operates here in this earth if you're going to walk free from it. Jesus has already done his part, but you've got a part to play too. Who will believe his report? To whom is the arm of Adonai revealed? For before him, before God, he, Jesus, grew up like a young plant. Like a root out of dry ground, he was not well-formed or especially handsome. We saw him, but his appearance did not attract us. Apparently, according to Isaiah, Jesus looked like an ordinary guy. Now, don't let that throw you, because any, any ordinary guy that's got the life of God in him has an attractiveness to them that you can't explain. Jesus might not have been the guy that that the the casting crew would have looked at and said, wow, he looks like a leading man. But all you had to do is be around him and there was something that drew you. There was an attraction, a supernatural attraction to him, but not his appearance. People despised and avoided him, a man of pains, well acquainted with illness. Like someone from whom people turned their faces, he was despised and we did not value him. In fact, it was our diseases he bore our pains from which he suffered. Yet we regard him as punished, stricken and afflicted by God. Verse 5. But he was wounded because of our crimes, crushed because of our sins. The disciplining that makes us whole fell on him, and by his bruises we are healed. We all like sheep went astray. We turned each one to his own way. Yet Adonai laid on him the guilt of all of us. Though mistreated, he was submissive. He did not open his mouth like a lamb led to be slaughtered, like a sheep silent before his shearers. He did not open his mouth. After forcible arrest and sentencing, he was taken away. Verse eight. And none of his generation protested his being cut off from the land of the living for the crimes of my people. Folks, that's not just talking about physical death. That's talking about spiritual death. He was separated from God. He became sin that you might become righteous. None of his generation protested his being cut off from the land of the living for the crimes of my people who deserve the punishment themselves. Why? Because of original sin. Adam's sin. He was given a grave among the wicked. In his death, he was with a rich man. Although he had done no violence and had said nothing deceptive, yet it pleased Adonai to crush him with illness. Please notice verse 10. Yet it pleased God to crush him with illness. Literal translation is God made him sick. Just as God made him to be sin, he made him to be sick. Why? 
because Jesus died spiritually. And both sin and sickness are byproducts, along with poverty, are byproducts of spiritual death. When Jesus died spiritually, he became sin. When he died spiritually, he became sickness. That doesn't mean that he had cancer. It doesn't mean that he got leprosy. It means he became everything that sick, that spiritual death entails. Sin, sickness, and poverty. That's why it just said he, uh, what was the phrase that he used here? Discipline, the disciplining that makes us whole. That's talking about prosperity. It's talking about the price that he paid for poverty, which is a part of spiritual death. Yet it pleased Adonai to crush him with illness, to see if he would present himself as a guilt offering. Uh, now that's not really good. What it means is, for in so doing, he provided his soul as an offering for guilt. It wasn't to see, it's not something that happened to see if Jesus was going to hang it, hang tough in there. It means that this was a part of his soul being offered as a sacrifice for, for sin and guilt. To see if he would present himself as a guilt offering. If he does, he will see his offspring. That's you and me, by the way. And he will prolong his days. And at his hand, Adonai's desire will be accomplished. After this ordeal, he will see satisfaction by his knowing pain and sacrifice. My righteous servant makes many righteous. It is for their sins that he suffers. Therefore, I will assign him a share with the great. He will divide the spoil with the mighty. You look up that word mighty and it means somebody that wins a battle. I will divide him a spoil as one who won a great war. For having exposed himself to death and being counted among the sinners while actually bearing the sin of many and interceding for the offenders. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. This is a pretty true translation. There might be a a few words that I would change and would prefer, uh, or scriptures that I prefer in other translations as opposed to the ones that we just read. But that's going to be true for any. I've never found any translation that I said, well, that was just great. There's no, there's no changing. There's no looking at that. There's no making adjustments. But the, but this complete Jewish Bible is really pretty good in most cases. And it's amazing to me how that the Jews understood those scriptures that were written in Hebrew, how they understood that griefs and pains meant sicknesses and infirmities. Sickness and disease, it meant illness. It, it's talking about physical sickness. Yet the Christian translators have been over backwards to say, no, 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 that's not what it means. Christian denominations will say, no, 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 it's not talking about physical healing. It's talking about spiritual healing. Which, by the way, there is no such thing. There's no such thing as being healed spiritually. There's such a thing as being born again. Born again is being recreated in spirit. But there is no such thing in in Scripture. I, I get, when I say there is no such thing, you can find a lot of people that talk about it, and a lot of people try to explain it and define it and whatever. But there is no scriptural evidence, no scriptural example of spiritual healing. God did not heal you spiritually. He doesn't even heal you emotionally. He shows you how to forget the past, which takes care of most of our problems. Oh, but Pastor Mike, God healed me of a broken heart. How? He may have told you what belongs to you. He may have told you who you are and you believed it and you accepted that. And as a result, you moved on in life. He may have comforted you, and that comfort brought you peace, 
But how does God heal a broken heart in the way that people use that phrase? They're talking emotions. How does God heal your emotions? Can't find it in the Bible. You can find in the Bible what the, what the scripture says about doing with your emotions. It says, number one, don't let them be your guide. And it says, forget the past. And most of the healings, or I'm sorry, most of the hurts that we have in the area of emotions has to do with things that happened to us in the past. And the people that are the most emotionally bruised, so to speak, held in bondage by their emotions, won't let go of the past. Paul said, this one thing I do, this one thing I do, this one thing I do. He didn't say one of the things I do. He said, this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind, I press forward. Paul learned what was important. Forget the past. The Bible talks about your past, and it says forget it. Now, that's way beyond what a lot of people are willing to do. I get that. I understand that. I had a lot of experience with that. I've had more people get mad at me over that statement than you could possibly imagine. Because people say, oh, Pastor Mike, you're just hard. I'm not hard. I'm just telling you the truth. The Bible says forget your past. Well, that's what I want to do. Pray for me that I'll forget the past. And then they walk out the door looking for the next person they can tell about their story. You can't forget something if you keep talking about it, if you keep dragging it up. I'll say it again. The Bible does talk about your past. And it says the one thing to do about it is to forget it. Paul said, I forget the things that I did that were good, and I forget the things that I did that were bad. Why? Because today is a new day. So there is no emotional healing. There is no spiritual healing. The only thing the Bible ever, 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 ever talks about healing is the physical body. The only thing the Bible says Jesus paid the price for you to be healed for is your physical body. Folks, it can't be any clearer. In scripture. You need several theologians to muddy up the water. But don't worry, there are plenty. But the Bible couldn't be any more clear. But God knew that there's going to be a problem over this. He knew there's going to be controversy. He knew that people would try to take away. He knows that's the way the devil works. Where people, well-meaning people, people that love God, are going to be used by the devil to steal the truth of the word. For what purpose? The purpose of the devil in all this is to keep people in fear of death. Keep people operating according to their experience with sickness and disease instead of believing from their heart something that contradicts their experience. Because that's the only way you can be released and not be subject to bondage even though you've been freed from the power of death. The only way you can get out from under sickness even though Jesus has paid the price for you to walk in health, the only way you can walk in health and be free from sickness is to change your experience with sickness to a belief in healing. And that belief has to be based on God's Word. Now, I want to get something across to you, folks. And I'm sorry if I'm belaboring the point. If you've already got it, that's great. Just forgive me because I'm trying to make sure that other people get it. The original sin... Man's sin that opened the door to sin and death, that opened the door to sickness coming into the world, has already been dealt with. 
This is not an issue of the devil still is operating against me with sickness. That is not the issue. The issue is, are you through the fear of death staying in the place where the devil can reach you instead of walking over in the things of God? That's the only question. You remember the story in the um, uh, in the book of Acts? It talks about how that... Uh, it's Acts 16. And uh, Paul and Silas were in uh, uh, Philippi. They got thrown in jail. They were beaten and thrown in jail. They were Their hands and feet were in stock. Their backs are bleeding and hurting and all this kind of stuff. It said, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises, and the prisoners heard them. You remember that? And it goes on to say, that was verse 25. Verse 26 goes on to say, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. And everybody's chains fell off. Everybody's stocks fell off their feet. Every prison door opened. Everybody is loose now, and nobody moves. Now, that story tells us a great example of the power of God to set people free. But I want you to think about it on the other side right now. What are these people doing still sitting in jail? Their chains are off. Their doors are open. What are they doing still sitting in jail? That's exactly the way a lot of Christians live their lives. Jesus paid the price to release every bond that you ever had, to release All the power uh, to destroy the power of the devil, him that had the power of death, which is the devil, to release you from poverty, to release you from sickness, to release you from sin and the domination thereof, to release every Christian. Every Christian on the face of the earth is sitting in a jail cell or that's not walking in health is sitting in a jail cell. And God is saying, why are you still here? I set you free. Now, in Acts 16, they're waiting to see what Paul's going to do next. I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced that everybody's afraid to move because they know that the reason they're free is because Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises. They did it loud enough for everybody to hear. Their prayer and their praises must have had something to do with being free because now all of a sudden they're free and nobody's moving a peg. But if you turn that around to what Jesus has done, if Jesus has set you free, if Jesus opened the prison door, if Jesus turned your hands and your feet loose from whatever the devil was holding you bound with, Why are you still sitting in his jail? The answer, the Bible says in Hebrews 2.15, is the fear of death. The fear of death. The word fear there, again, think of it from the standpoint of experience. Our experience, our human experience here on the earth with sickness and disease is more important to us, is more real to us than what the Bible said Jesus has already done. time to leave that jail cell wouldn't you agree god knew there's going to be controversy god knew that even members of the church part of the church even even ministers would take away or at least try to take away through their fear of death through their lack of knowledge take away from us healing that jesus paid the price for so he gave us a commentary on isaiah 53 in matthew chapter 8 verse 16 It says, talking to Jesus in his ministry, when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. In other words, Matthew is inspired by the Holy Ghost to say, here's what Isaiah 53 means when it comes to healing. Did Jesus heal anybody spiritually here? Did Jesus heal people's emotions here? No. He says, when the evening has come, 
They brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. I like the fact that the Bible tells us in this case that he healed everybody in the crowd. Didn't leave anybody out. Why? Because Isaiah is talking about something that belongs for everybody. Folks, I know the Bible tells me to walk in love, but honest to goodness, one of the greatest challenges I have to my love walk is the more and more I study the word, the more I know what the Bible says about what Jesus did for us to hear preachers rob people from what the Bible says is ours, from what the Bible says so clearly that God made Jesus sick. Again, that doesn't mean he had leprosy or he made him have cancer or anything like that. It means he made him sick. Just like he made him sin, he made him sick. Just like he made him sin, he made him impoverished. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, it says, Jesus became poor for your sakes that you through his poverty might be rich. The only time Jesus was ever poor here on the earth or related to his earthly ministry was when he was on the cross. Every other time he had a treasure and he has plenty to, to do whatever he needed. And if, if that wasn't the way that God dealt with him, he multiplied loaves and fishes and even had the power to turn rocks into bread if he'd wanted to. Some people will say, no, 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 that means he was spiritually poor. Folks, spiritually poor people don't raise the dead. So you can find scriptures that says that God made Jesus sin. You can find scriptures that say God made Jesus sick. You can find scriptures that say God made Jesus poor or impoverished, destitute, literally. Why? Because that was the pun- the punishment that was necessary to be paid for you and I to have life and to be free from the dominion of sin, to walk in health, and to walk in prosperity. It's just that simple. And when I hear preachers talk about how this doesn't mean physical sickness, it doesn't mean healing for the physical body. It doesn't mean that God wants you to be rich. The Bible says he does. That is one of the greatest challenges I have to my love walk. I have learned through trial and error, mostly error. I have learned that every time I hear that, I immediately pray for that person. Because nothing infuriates me more. Then hear somebody take something away from them, try to take something away from God's people that Jesus paid his life for. I want you to start doing something. I want you to start saying that sickness has no hold over you. Because that's how you change things. I don't care what the doctor has said. I don't care what the diagnosis is. I'm not against doctors. I'm not saying take, throw away your medicine. Do whatever the doctor says that he can do to help. Great. No problem with that. Because the issue is not about your medicine. The issue is not about the doctor. The issue is about heart faith. You can start building your faith by taking your medicine. None of those things have anything to do with faith in your heart. Start saying sickness has no hold over me. Start saying I'm free from the dominion of sickness in my life. Now, the devil may challenge you on that. You may think, oh, that's easy for me. I don't have anything that's coming against me. That'll be easy for me to say, be ready. Because anytime you start taking a step like that, anytime you start walking out of the devil's jail cell and start operating like you really are free from something, he'll challenge you on it. But don't let that bother you. His attacks are always temporary. 
And they can never withstand the force of faith, even in the smallest, most baby Christian. And that's not you. So start saying that. Start saying, sickness has no hold over me. Just make that a practice. Sickness has no hold over me. The law of sin and death has been broken over my life because I'm in Christ Jesus. Jesus destroyed him that had the power over death. And I refuse to operate in the fear of death. Tell the devil you're not afraid of him. Look him in the eye. Find him. Don't run from him. Go looking for the guy. And tell him you're not afraid of him. Tell him you know that the word of God says, greater is he that's in you than any power the devil has. Challenge him with your words. Challenge him by saying, I refuse to let sickness and disease dominate me. I refuse to operate in the fear of death. Sickness and disease has no hold over me. You start doing that. You may have to do it. You may even almost have to whisper it to begin with. I know I did. But the more you think about what the word says, the more you see what the word says for yourself, the stronger and stronger you'll get. You'll become one that as soon as your foot hits the floor, the devil will start running. You'll wake up in the morning and they'll say, oh, no, he's awake. Jesus has already destroyed him that had the power of death. Sin, sickness, poverty has no hold over you, no dominion over you whatsoever. God has promised to bless the work of your hand. He said that there's no sickness, no disease, no infirmity, no condition that's greater than the power of God that already works in you. He said he'll quicken your mortal body by his spirit that lives within you. All you've got to do is turn him loose. And you do that through faith. Let's all stand. Let's start doing that now. Let's make some confessions. What do you say? Close your eyes and let your heart agree with this. Don't look around and see what anybody else is doing. Close your eyes and let your heart agree with this as we say these words. Don't just repeat me. Say them from your heart. I am in Christ Jesus. Jesus is my redeemer. He has redeemed me from the law of sin and death. Jesus has redeemed me from sin, sickness, and poverty. I refuse to be afraid of sickness. I refuse to be afraid of poverty. Sickness has no dominion over me, has no power over me. I refuse its right to remain in my flesh in Jesus' name. I am free by the work of Jesus from all the power of the devil, all the power of death. In Jesus' name, amen. You make that a practice in your life and things will change. That's how you walk out of the devil's jail cell. That's why you change the fear of death from being able to hold you in bondage to real heart faith that sets you free. It's just that simple, folks. Christians aren't healed because other Christians pray for them. Christians are healed because they believe God's word. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a good evening.